This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Brian Stack, a VP of Engineering and Dark Web Intelligence at Experian. Experian Consumer Services, leader in delivering online credit reports and credit scores. Brian, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Dave, for having me. So, Brian, before we get started, why don't you give us a little background about yourself? Tell us how you got to where you are today. Sure. So, I have a master's in uh, computer engineering. I originally started my career off in IT, doing network security, email security, before deciding to go on for my master's and become more involved in software development. After I graduated with my master's, I worked on the U.S. Missile Shield for Northrop Grumman. So I uh, wrote a lot of the early kind of missile control technology, got the entrepreneurial bug, and eventually left that and started my own software company, doing a lot in the social media. This is early on social networking, early 2000s, along with building some early technology for online streaming media. Eventually, I found my way to Experian in around 2007, 2008. And I've been there ever since. And uh, in 2016, we purchased a company out of Texas called CSID that had this dark web team. And so I had the fortunate opportunity to be able to start to manage that team. And so now today, I have a team of engineers, software engineers, dark web engineers, cyber analysts, uh, data scientists around the world building technology to protect businesses and consumers from identity theft. Sure. Yeah. Interesting. So is much of the dark web work today, is it, you know, in defense of say credential stuffing, that type of stuff, is it mostly leaked accounts or do you get to see, you know, tools and tactics? Yeah, we see tools and tactics. Our primary mission is to protect consumers. And so a good chunk of that is around credentials, obviously emails and passwords, but we look at the entire breadth of someone's digital identity. So this could be anything from social security number, credit card, debit cards, passports, driver's license, you name it. Those are anything that could potentially resold and monetize to damage your identity is a piece of data or technology we're interested in pursuing and understanding. Yeah, I guess the kind of the on-ramp to credit products isn't the same as to an account holder, like at a bank. I guess it is. If you know enough of somebody's history, you probably could start to get access to what their credit scores were and things like that. Because uh, having done accounts at both, uh, I'm a customer of yours, as well as the other two agencies, which we won't name. But but no, having done that myself, it is interesting. They kind of ask you questions that in theory only you could answer. But I guess these days with enough data exposed in the world, someone could actually assemble, you know, those kind of answers to, is this really Brian? Is this who we should be allow on, uh, you know, to access this account? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of those knowledge-based questions are still somewhat effective, but that is why more and more companies are moving towards things like two-factor authentication, whether it be through an app authenticator or through a text message, some type of kin and P that is used in order to to log in. Because you are right. There is so much data. When I first got into this space in 2016, 2017, we had roughly two or three billion records in our dark web database. Right now, we're well over 20 billion. And and that is just an indicator of the exponential growth 
of just massive data breaches, but just the overall amount of data breaches that are occurring that often you don't even hear about. Mm -hmm. It can happen where someone's laptop is attacked with a piece of malware and data is exfiltrated. It could be a small business, a small hospital. A lot of the ones that fall under the radar, there is just a treasure trove of data that is 10 to 100 fold what it used to be just even five to seven to eight years ago. Oh, yeah. No, we're definitely, uh, I would say, drowning in data, but I think most people are happy for it. Funny enough, that makes their life easier, if only they knew. So, Brent, you have an extensive background. Obviously, you've done a bunch of things in, in a few different industries. What are some of the unique cybersecurity challenges that you've encountered and how have they informed your next steps like as you've moved along? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there were two unique challenges when I first took over the team became focused on consumer uh, identity protection. One was a language barrier. So the cyber analyst, as we call them, which is the human intelligence arm of my group that actually goes online, goes on the dark web, infiltrates a lot of these forums. They only all spoke English. And so the global cyber threat is not purely an English only speaking language problem. It's a global problem. And so one of the first things I did was start to bring on staff who were native speakers in various Indian dialects, in Russian, Chinese, Farsi, so that we could better infiltrate some of these networks. Using Google Translate wasn't really an effective way to build relationships. One of the things, I mean, we don't ever buy data. And anyone who's worth their stock in the security industry would never buy data off the dark web, right, to fund their products. But what we do do is we do build up reputations in several forums, right? And so we'll talk about things like maybe if the World Cup is going on or the latest uh, iPhone or, or maybe the latest, you know, superhero movie. And you can build credits in these spaces. And by building credits in some of these forums, you can get access to more and more data. The second piece is what I kind of alluded to, that this is a truly a, a global problem. That is 24-7, 365. And so originally we had teams that were geolocated in London and on the West Coast of the U.S. So we decided to expand that out to also be in India and partially on the East Coast so that 24 hours a day we had some arm of human intelligence. Now, we still have automation and we're using some machine learning, but human intelligence is still foundationally one of the best ways to get data find new channels, find new forums. And so that is an operation that you need to run 24 hours a day, close to seven days a week, 365 days a year. So those are two big challenges we were able to overcome. Yeah, very cool. Do you have your people tried to follow kind of the diurnal cycle of someone where they're pretending to be that persona, like they only log in, you know, Moscow time, for example, if they're trying to uh, pretend to be a, a Moscovite? Yeah, correct. Yeah, I mean, we do some of it. Occasionally, we do have to recycle. Sometimes people decide that hey, you know, that's a, this, this persona doesn't quite seem right. Or if you don't contribute, which obviously we don't, we don't contribute data to these forums. Eventually, those personas often get deleted and we have to recreate them. But yeah, part of it is speaking, acting, interacting in a way as if you're in that location. Sure. So if you don't mind me asking, and if I could go back in your career, and this is just my own nerdery interests. I was very interested in how uh, real-time computation works relative to a standard-like system. And one of the things that I'm familiar with is you had mentioned doing rocket telemetries. It's a similar method used for like gun stabilization on mobile tanks and mobile artillery, things like that. 
And it's always been interesting to me how the attacks against those architectures don't work the same. So for example, QNX, if you're familiar with QNX, the operating system, it's very, very common in ordnance uh, telemetry because it's first and first out uh, computational interface because so you don't have to worry about, you know, filling registers at a specific rate because things have to happen in order, right? Because it's ordnance. Did you get to, uh, you mentioned that you were doing security for that stuff. Did you get to work with any of that level of security to where you got to see kind of the advances of these, let's call them alternate hardwares? I know we're kind of coming, it's coming in popular again now with ARM is kind of coming back into right, popular. Right, right. Uh, but believe it or not, it separates you from the pack, right? And if you're not running, and I'm not trying to pick on Intel here, but if you're not running an x86 architectured system, there are a whole slew of attacks that just don't work, right? Like it's hard to do memory attacks as if that's not how the memory is managed. So did you get to have any of that uh, exposure? It's a great question. Yeah, I didn't have the opportunity. We had a separate group of, of software engineers who were kind of dedicated to that space. Okay. I was more, my responsibility was making sure the mission control software would actually, you know, not have any race conditions and would actually show a consistent state to say, yes, this is a real attack. Okay, these these missiles are online, ready sure. to go. And these are the ones we should prioritize and, and pick based on the trajectory of, you know, is this attack coming from the West Coast or the East Coast? And sure. so it was kind of maintaining, think of it as the state machine or the missile control system. I see. Okay. So low stress environment, you're saying. <laughs> yeah, low, low stress <laughs> environment. So... Given your background with both startups, entrepreneurial stuff, and as well as corporate stuff, how do kind of, as you're prioritizing risks, how do the priorities and strategies differ between all those different arenas? Like, what have you learned along the way? Yeah, that's a great question, right? So when you're a startup, small, but even a medium-sized business, you, you don't have large budgets. You're not going to have a CISO, right? But I think the first thing is you can still have a culture of security. That's free, right? So I think it starts there that we are going to make security part of our culture. And number two, I think you can reinforce that with training, right? There's a ton of free training that's available online in terms of how to secure your device, how to make sure you're not a victim of a phishing attack, right? Those are the little things for sure. I think the third thing for a small business is email systems are still the main vehicle in which often data is stolen from a network, right? A lot of data breaches today, it isn't necessarily someone's, you know, cracked or broken through your WAS. It's they deployed a phishing attack, somebody clicked, their system got infected, who maybe has some higher privileges, right? And so having an email system that you're using that has some type of, of phishing detection as part of it, I think is, again, a lot of that is, is starting to get baked into most email systems, but making sure as a small business, you're leveraging that, using that, or at least upselling into it. It's an easy way, right, to help protect your business. I think the next thing, and this is still shocks me today, we still see a ton of databases that you know show up in the dark web. There are snippets of databases that show up in the dark web that have clear text passwords or clear text personal information. So encrypting at a field level in your database, right? This is something that whether you're a small company or a medium-sized company, your database engineers or software engineers should absolutely be doing. It's a little extra effort, but in the event you are breached, your data becomes much less useful for the threat actor. And then the, the last piece I would say for a small business is endpoint security. If you are running a site 
that has exposure. If you're running an e-commerce site, you know, obviously firewalls, WAFs, you know, those advancements are available. They're not terribly expensive or a, a lot of overhead to maintain. So even a senior network engineer or DevOps person, you know, who's worth their salt can kind of maintain those. So you don't need a huge staff to have some secure endpoint, some basic email security, and making sure you're encrypting your database. For enterprises, obviously it includes all those five for sure. But also I think you need to start, obviously you're going to have a a mature and modern information security and compliance organization. You know, I don't know if you necessarily need a C-suite depending on the size of your business, but you should have someone minding the store around information security and compliance, especially with the emergence of so many new technologies, potential threats like AI, like, and how is that going to maybe fit into your business model and how you're maintaining your data assets? It's something you should have someone who, who has some gravitas who can understand that part of the business. Also, I think investing in cloud security. This is something even enterprise organizations make the mistake of. They think, well, if I'm on Azure or I'm on AWS, they maintain it. Sometimes they do if you use some of their managed services, but just throwing a, a, an S3 bucket up on an Amazon instance, that is not secure, right? And so making the extra investment to making sure your cloud infrastructure is secure is, I think, extremely important and I think often gets overlooked. And it's what we've started to see more and more of is even medium to large sized businesses having their data exfiltrated from the cloud because they have just unsecured data sources. Another big one, and this is, I mean, anyone who's an engineer probably is going to be clapping for this one, but managing your technical debt and modernizing legacy systems, right? Often new products are deployed on newer systems in order to generate new revenue. Older systems, 5, 10, maybe even 15 or 20 years old, are still hanging around and, and can become easy targets for threat actors. And I think the last one that separates, I think, enterprises from small businesses is just brand protection. If you are a large company, a data breach is potentially going to have an impact on your stock. There's also a lot of mechanisms out there, whether it be through services like Telegram or Discord, where they're on social media and sometimes they're impersonating your IT administrator. They're impersonating maybe a call center agent in order to piggyback off your brand to steal personal information. So I think trying to be more aggressive with protecting your brand as it's maybe being abused online to steal personal information from consumers is something you, I think, need to be aware of. Yeah, absolutely agreed, because that's something that like companies just have a very, very hard time getting back once they lose kind of control of their image or take that black eye. You know, you mentioned encrypted databases. It, this is like one of the hills that I'm happy to die on. There is no reason, like a lot of people like to cite, well, the cost of crypto computationally is too high for us to encrypt all of these fields. And that was probably true in about 2005. But Intel, AMD, I mean, you name the manufacturer, they put either on core, like in the die itself of your CPU has fully specific, like nearly ASIC level speed for registers that only do crypto, or there is an actual ASIC on the main board that does just the crypto. And so those days are over. And but people want to use 
performance as their reasoning to not use crypto. And it's really, frankly, it's an antiquated view. It's not including the advances in hardware as they have come along. And to do the same attack, like an in-memory attack where you are pulling decrypted information, is like an order of magnitude, if not more, harder than just gaining access to a table. So why would you not make it so much harder? But I run into this all of the time where I'll ask where, like, for example, you had mentioned credentials, where they'll only do the hash only on the password field and the user ID field. And then all of the other PII is just in plain text, like you said, whereas if the access to that specific system that that data is serving was the only thing that they had in mind. And then like your team comes across this database Who cares what front end it was that hash was supposedly acting as a control for, right? Because here's the whole database. You don't need to go to whatever it it used to be. And like, if you had to guess what percentage of your dark web exposures, when you see them, can you look at it and say, ah, if only they had? Yeah, I mean, about 50% of kind of these large data assets are either in clear text still, or the encryption is so weak still that it's easily breakable, right? And exposed. So yeah, I mean, I would say about half the data we find is strong encrypted, and maybe there's some other PIA attached to it that just people didn't encrypt. Maybe it's a name and maybe it's an address. But uh, yeah, about 50% overall are that still are still very yeah, readily available. That is a huge yet unsurprising number. And I hate to say it because I'm not usually a, a fan of like regulation, regulatory bodies to typically tend to not have the technical prowess to really go about and understand the nuance of what they're out to enforce. Like in my background, I I had to work with FERPA and HIPAA and things like that, just from my background doing high performance computing and the regulatory components to it, you know, like you'd have to explain to somebody first, even what you'd done and hope they followed along and then whether or not you were compliant, you know? So, but in this case, the way people store data, it's one of those times where I'm kind of glad there is a regulatory component where they can spot because that's simple to see, right? It's like, okay, show me your data at rest and prove to me that it's encrypted, that it seems like, you know, a hassle to business because it's in the way of you doing your normal business, right? But that's one of those cases where I'm frankly, I'm glad to see when people have somebody come and say, you know, you're not certifiable because you're not doing these things. Because over time, there will be enough attrition on that number and hopefully we can get it much lower than 50%. Right, right. And yeah, I mean, to dig a little deeper down that rabbit hole, what defines strong encryption obviously changes, especially with cryptocurrency. And like you're saying, GPUs are so much better and cheaper than they used to be. But right. yeah, a password that was eight or nine characters and, and hashed with, you know, 128, 10 years ago, great. Now that's broken in, in a matter of seconds. So, you know, you gotta not only encrypt, but also stay ahead of the game. Absolutely. So let's talk about people. Let's talk about practitioners, since we've already talked about CPU registers and uh, memory attacks and real-time operating systems. Sorry. But no, practitioner-wise, what skills do you think are most critical for a practitioner today to succeed? Yeah. So first, I would say learn computer and network fundamentals. You know, attack styles change over time, but a lot of the time, the underlying fundamentals of how they're doing it remains the same. And the types of security vulnerabilities remain the same. Second, definitely master your craft and tools, right? Understanding the different tools that are available, which tools are better than others, I think is extremely important. Whether it be 
a WAF for a network engineer, software vulnerability scans for software engineers, or understanding how SQL injection works and how to prevent it if you're a database engineer. And lastly, I would say take a class in human psychology if you are in this space. So this is one of my big talking points when I've been on several podcasts, is you need to better understand the motives and techniques of potential attackers and how they can successfully exploit victims, which could be your employees, it could be your consumers. So books like Influenced by Robert Saldani, there's also Eddie Williams, who's a great German technical evangelist on security on this subject. And they helped you to understand and dive into, again, what is motivating a lot of these threat actors? I view threat actors into five groups, you know, being organized crime, nation states, anarchists, script kiddies, and potentially your own employees. And so understanding whether if you're a major e-commerce company or if you're a small uh, children's hospital in Atlanta, who's going to potentially attack you is very different and how you can defend yourself based on who's potentially going to attack you and their motivations will be very prescriptive based on knowing that information. Very, very much agreed with understanding the human element. You know, one of the biggest kind of missteps I see organizations make is they let the security policies be determined only by technologists. They have none of the business risk. Decision makers are typically involved. It's all about TCP IP. It's all about AD ACLs. It's all about, you know, our group policies. It's all about these types of things. But nobody then takes the time to say, well, who might dislike us? They only think, what do we have that someone might want to take? But they, it's never reputation. They never think, oh, well, maybe our reputation. Or they never consider, like, what are the life drivers for these people? Like, for example, you know, I understand that a thief is a thief, but a thief who's stealing because they're greedy versus a thief who's stealing because they're hungry are actually two different types of driver. Sure, they may end up in the same place holding a, you know, something they've stolen in their hand, but how they got there is is radically different. I just saw a piece that the guys at Shadow Dragon, they posted their CEO I follow on LinkedIn, and, and he's getting ready to do some research showing how we have this unfortunate storm of energy crisis in Europe, in particular in Germany and going east, right? there, These folks, because of the no longer having access to you know plentiful liquid gas and whatnot from the Russian Federation, they're now you know, going to have to scramble. Electricity bills are going up and all of this. Well, the folks at Shadow Dragon, they're actually tracking now to see, okay, well, given that that's true, and let's use Germany as the test group, given that that's true, let's look and see if we see more cybercrime originating out of Germany because of the desperation, because of the, you know, because if you look at like post Ceausescu Romania, right, lots of the Romanian cybercrime came from people who were highly educated, but largely unwanted by their family because their parents were made to have them like they because you had to pay a tax if you didn't have kids in Romania. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. So the Romanian hacker revolution was this strange societal side effect. Actually, it wasn't that Romanians are wanting to necessarily be hackers. It's that they're hungry, you know, like uh, for all this stuff. So it's very good to hear that you encourage that because I think it's hugely overlooked. At least have like your CMO there your chief marketing officer, so that you know what kind of things are they saying into the microphone. Like maybe something that they tweet about some conference that 
somebody in your organization is going to be at. Maybe that's why you get attacked, you know, and you have no idea. Uh, so that's very, very good to hear. So when you talk about your own so experience in particular, so as you talk about kind of the amount of data that you guys have, and you mentioned one of the threat actor groups being kind of the insider threat as well, I would imagine you guys have more PII well, then I would say yourself and your two leading companies, I guess, probably have more PII than almost anybody next to perhaps the IRS or somebody like that. What do you guys do to educate your employees so that they're aware? You had mentioned, you know, kind of involving everybody on being to be security minded. What kind of tools and, and best practices are you guys employing there? Obviously, without disclosing too much. Yeah. I mean, so we have a policy of security first, which is baked into our culture, which means, again, it's kind of to my earlier comment about, you know, security being part of the culture and it's everybody's responsibility. And so that has been baked in. We have a lot of funding around tools and training that is part of our everyday culture. For me specifically on on my team, two things that we do, right, is one, the dark web analysts or the cyber analysts, as we call them, they go through a training period before we kind of let them loose, so to speak, right? To understand the environments they're in, the potential threat actors, how to how to create these personas and kind of mask who they are. But also, my team is fully air-gapped from the rest of experience. So you talk about the treasure trove of data and what's available. So by design, my team is completely air-gapped, you know, in different data centers, you name it, using different laptops, the whole thing. So that because, again, we take it, we'd rather incur the extra expense of an extra data center or duplicate hardware so that we fully have my team air grab from the rest of experience. So I think that's just an indicator of kind of where our priorities are. And it's not just training. We kind of put the finances behind it to reinforce trying to make sure that our systems are ironclad as much as possible. Sure, I bet that's absolutely critical. So just to slightly pivot here. So for your staff, you know, the dark web is a kind of a crazy place, right? There's all kinds of stuff flying around there. Do you find, and I'm just thinking out loud, by the way, but thinking of the psychology of kind of your, your dark web analyst, for example, I could imagine that that function would be not dissimilar to maybe people who are doing counterterrorism work or doing anti-sesam work, you know, with a child exploitation material that they're in pursuit of to where you have to give people a cycle them through it so that they don't develop effectively a PTSD. You know, there's numerous instances where people who were following jihadist groups online became sympathetic to their subjects. Do you guys, do you find that these people that you have working personas that you had to do that or do you do that? Yeah. So we currently do that. It is something that I have contemplated. I mean, thankfully, the ones who are, we don't do anything involving counterterrorism or any groups like that, or obviously the the rampant uh, child pornography that exists, that would definitely has a, I think, a, a mental drain on anyone doing that day after day. I mean, thankfully, the vast majority of the work we're doing, again, are in chat rooms, forums, where people are talking about pop culture and then they're saying, hey, here's my Telegram channel if you want to buy some credit card data, right? Sure. So it's definitely in a less stressful environment. So did you do any of this stuff back in the kind of IRC days? Yeah, we still have some active IRC channels. So, I mean, when people think of the dark web, they often think of it as a more advanced version of the internet. It's actually much more bare bones. It's much more 1990s internet than it is modern internet. And that is by design because often the surface web 
is really a security sieve. You know, your data is everywhere. Everything is being tracked. And so because of that, the dark web is much more bare bones. Sure. And there is a, a big move right now, and I'm actually doing a, a talk on this coming up in, in May at an Experian conference. There is a move from kind of the traditional dark web much more aggressively into the social messaging space, places like Telegram and Discord. Yeah, I've seen a lot of folks going to Telegram for sure. Loads and loads of uh, screen caps and things like that. When I'm seeing people who are, like you said, you know, maintaining personas and whatnot, I've noticed lots and lots of them there. So for your industry specifically, and you listed kind of five adversary groups, right? But they're never created equally, right? So motives aside, what do you think are the biggest cybersecurity challenges that you guys face relative to those groups? And I mean specifically Experian. Yeah. And let me add to that, that my cybersecurity focus and my team's focus continues to be about protecting the identity of our consumers and our clients that we support, right? That is our mission every day. And I think there's a handful of challenges in 2023 and beyond. One of it is a potentially faulting economy, potentially faulting global economy. So, you know, we've seen the number of tech layoffs that happen. And when that occurs, let's be honest, right? The little things often get left behind. Maybe, and I don't want to call out any specific company, but maybe instead of a major, you know, IT company or, or software company, instead of updating their patches on their systems every week, now it slides to every two weeks. And so that window of opportunity gets a little bit bigger. I think malware as a service, so it, it is shocking how cheap it is to buy services on the dark web, whether it be for a distributed denial of service attack, malware as a service, as little as $100, you can buy prepackaged kits that are used to attack you know, an individual or a large enterprise. Geopolitical conflict, I think, is a, a huge challenge moving forward for everybody. I think Warfare in 2023 and beyond is no longer just about troops and weaponry. It really is about the potential attack of energy grids, financial institutions. These all systems become very vulnerable because they're often soft targets. So oceans alone won't protect consumers or citizens, right? And so I think the threat of a large-scale attack has grown because of the advancements in cyber warfare. Criminals are targeting smaller organizations. This could be smaller companies, whether it's a small dentist's office or a hospital or a small e-commerce company. RiskCon did a study, and I think it was at the end of 2021, that there was about 150% increase in attacks on small businesses. And we've seen this trend also continue along with ransomware attacks, which are part of that increase. Also, a lot of organizations can't afford cyber insurance. So if you're you know, a Fortune 500 company, you have cyber insurance. So if you are a victim of ransomware, there's some payout that you have, there's some protection. But again, to my earlier point, small businesses being hit, small public institutions being hit, they don't have cyber insurance, right? It's, it's too expensive. And part of there's a number of reasons for that. Part of it is they still have trouble figuring out the underwriting because it is such a fluid idea of how do you underwrite a proper cyber insurance policy for, let's say, a children's hospital. Right. And then I think the last piece everyone's talking about it, so I might as well talk about it, is obviously the emergence of, you know, A&I, you know, some level of artificial intelligence, you know, trying to get our heads around how it's going to be used as an offensive weapon by cyber criminals, but also how are we going to use it as a defensive mechanism to try to protect ourselves? I don't think anyone has a real clear answer of how that ebb and flow is going to pan out the next few years. Yeah. You know, AI 
I hate to tell everybody, but if they're already amazed, they are going to be shocked soon because what we're seeing today is is just these large language models, right? We're not even to a rat, actually. This is a trick that AI can do, but not actually to AI yet. So it would be like looking at a clown and think, oh, look, it's a juggler. It's like, well, wait till you see the unicycle. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, this is just one trick that it can do. Yeah. And, and it's been massively disruptive already. Yeah. And a lot of it isn't even purely uh, generalized. You know, it's not just A&I. It's very specific. Like you said, it's, it's large language models. It's a little bit like a magician, right? This seems yeah. like it's doing magic, but there are some very basic things underneath that are happening. We're how far away from AGI? I think that's the concern. Like once we get to general intelligence, are we a year away, five years away? And I don't think anyone is equipped, I think, from a technical point of view, a political point of view, a a social point of view of, you know, with true artificial intelligence or consciousness, we don't understand our own consciousness. Right. That gets turned on. What does that mean? Is that is that a person? (laughs) Like, what does that mean? How do you deal with that? We're not even close to figuring that out. It's remarkable how few people there are out there who are thinking of it as like realize like, well, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Like what actually is below the surface here? What other emergent capabilities? What other emergent threats, you know, are there? I know people who want to run their whole business through ChatGPT already which is just astonishing. I mean, I couldn't imagine like if, imagine if you were, uh, when electricity started to become largely available, right? And you're a textile factory, you're going to immediately run electricity all through your building when we haven't even figured out, you know, shielded wiring. I mean, think of the danger. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. I'm shocked by a lot of people who I respect and are really smart, who do seem to be mesmerized by this Same. are not stepping back. And let's just be prudent and think about, you know, what this could become and are we equipped to handle it? Absolutely. And like you, many of the people I'm talking about are people I have great respect for who would normally be yelling, it's up his sleeve, you know, from the audience. But instead, like you said, they're just mesmerized by, I guess it's the potential is romantic. And intoxicating because it's like you're about to be in some Arthur Clarke or, or, you know, you're about to be on the cover of action comic books from the 50s and we're about to meet George Jetson. And it's like, oh, it's just right now around the corner, but it's not. I just don't see that happening yet. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So down the road, five years from now, what do you think cyber risk management will look like? Where do you think tools are headed? What do you think the future looks like? Yeah. So specifically in my space, when it comes to protecting consumers, I've been beating this drum for about two years now. You know, monitoring and alerting is kind of table stakes, right? I received a lot of feedback over the years from clients and consumers of, okay, we love these services. You're helping protect us. But I got a dark web alert, you know, for the fifth time in two years. You know, what, what do I do? Like, what can I do? And so the future, and this is something we are investing in, it is around analytics, prevention, and I think prescriptive education, right? So again, to them, I think I have a dark web alert. Well, in what context do you have? Was it something that was maybe exfiltrated off your laptop and maybe you have malware? Or was it from a data breach and your email and password were potentially stolen? Or is it something more potentially dangerous where your entire, your, your full identity of a social security number, your driver's license were also breached? And then giving them prescriptive procedures of how to actually go through and solve each of those unique problems and try to give them a much more more analytics, I think, visualization of what is your total internet footprint and where are you most at risk, right? And, and I think it's 
generally everyone's promoting, you know, okay, download a password manager, do this. I think there's a lot of free, simple things people can do. And I, this is something I tell my parents is always try to just shrink your digital footprint, right? Do you need that X? Do you need four credit cards? Go to two or three, you know, are there some websites that you no longer use? Well, you know, make sure you disable those accounts. Like there's things to do to try to shrink your footprint, which by default will shrink your risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's great advice. So typically for our last question, we like to ask people, you know, what three pieces of actual advice do you have for practitioners that are listening in? But I feel like you've touched on probably six as we've been talking here. So let me change this up just a little bit. Is there any one last thing aside from kind of the strategic advice of, you know, make your target smaller and the realistic advice of, you know, have a good disaster recovery, have, you know, good password policy besides those things? What are some things that you would say are actionable aside from the obvious? Yeah, I think there's one last piece of advice I want to give anyone who's in this space is think beyond technology. You alluded to it earlier, right? It's always like, well, I'm just going to get the new tool or I'm going to get uh, you know, intrusion detection that's now enabled with AI. There's, you need to start to think beyond technology, right? Think about how it, some of the motivations we talked about earlier. But again, there are states, right? U.S. states right now that are thinking about maybe passing laws to ban ransomware payments. Right now, there may be some unintended consequences, but again, it's thinking outside of let's just buy the latest tool or get the latest training. What are non-technical things we can do to either improve people's behavior or to mute potential attacks against us? Right. So, if, hey, if you say we will never pay a ransomware payment, well, there's a good chance maybe that do, putting that out there in the public space will reduce your probability of being attacked. Right. So I think it's thinking of things like that outside the box that are not necessarily tied purely to technology that I hope technologists start to embrace and think about. Sure. You know, I hate to use the example, but it worked with the United States government's policy on kidnappings. Kidnap a federal employee of the United States and we're not going to pay you a ransom. We're going to send Navy SEALs to bring them back. And that's our stated policy and attacks, kidnapping attempts on U.S. federal employees globally went down by like some huge percentage, whereas it was not uncommon, even in places like Spain and places where you think of as like safe, there were attacks and kidnappings and, you know, all this type of stuff was not uncommon. That used to be a big part of like the State Department's approach to manning remote station was keeping everybody prepared for, you know, counterintelligence, but also opportunistic kidnappings because it's an American there. And these days, places like, uh, and I'm not trying to pick on them geographically, but places like Africa are considerably safer now because they know Uncle Sam isn't going to bring them a paycheck. He's going to bring them a helicopter and they don't get to keep it, <laughs> you know, or the friends who come out of it and come to pick up the person. And that it sounds like it does sound silly, but that is it. One quick class question for you. You had mentioned, you know, cyber insurance earlier as a piece in it. And it made me think because we were talking about how tricky that is. But you are actually kind of close to this industry, so perhaps you have some insights here. How are actuary sciences evolving to catch up with that? I would imagine they're not dissimilar to what you guys are doing on the analytics side. So, I, I mean, are you hopeful at least? Or Yeah, so I am hopeful. And the turning point for me was just before COVID, I was at Black Hat, and for the first time, I think it was someone from, God, uh, was it Lloyd's of London or Chubb? One of the big insurance providers got to present for the first time about how they were, some of the technology they were starting to invest in. 
to better improve the underwriting. And so it was the first time, you know, and this person was just like, hey, I'm actually finally getting embraced by Black Hat. I've, I've tried to do this pitch here for two, three years. So yeah, I'd say five years ago, it was very basic. It was a form you'd fill out, you know, are you patching your systems? How many servers oh, yeah. do you have? Now they are trying to build machine learning models to look at a number of different factors in order to create a much more accurate risk profile for companies. Well, I will tell you, I'm glad it's not my job because it's like trying to predict how much of the audience is going to applause at a joke before you have ever told the joke to anybody. It's the worst type of predictive stuff you'd have to do. And the payouts that they've had to give already on some of these have completely tanked the margins on insurance as a whole. So that's why I asked if you were hopeful, because I'm a pessimist in the sense that I believe in if you plan for the worst, you can only ever be pleasantly surprised, right? So I always, uh, though I wish for the good, I always study the bad. The good is like, oh, well, that's nice, but the bad is really what gets my attention. And when I saw the return on what that, as a product went, cyber insurance, was such a loss leader for those industries that are providing it today, I thought, wow, this isn't going to last long. Correct. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I think the transition that happened was they went from kind of that very basic, you know, manual form. And I think they just kind of digitized it and said, well, let's just find ways to automate and get some of this data more automatically or verify some of the data. I'm hopeful because I have had started to have conversations where they are starting to look beyond just basic do you have a firewall? How many servers do you have? You know, I've encouraged them to start to look at our dark web database. The colonial pipeline attack from a few years ago, we just, after it happened, I had my guys go back and look to see, was there any, any chatter that was a little bit off nominal compared to what we've seen? And we did see, we saw a lot more of the colonial pipeline emails and password combinations showing up about six months before the attack. So I think there's other data sources that they're starting to look at Machine learning models do take a while to build and train, but I am hopeful that they'll start to incorporate more of a of a holistic picture of, again, what is not just your infrastructure, but your employees, what devices are they using, how they are interacting potentially, and what are the ways data is maybe being exfiltrated from your networks oh, just accidentally, right? For sure. people using Google Drive or unsecure cell phones that companies give out that potentially could be a point where data gets exfiltrated. So. Sure, for sure. You know, I have uh, some friends that came out of Wells Fargo. They had developed a fraud detection method that they later spun out and started their own company, Cyberteam 6. And those guys, they did a similar exercise. They discovered that they could predict at about a 40% accuracy. So think that means 40% reduction if you were to flip it, right. if you look at an application. But they could predict at about 40% or so that an account was going to be abused based on their activities talking to botnets. Like if you saw the device that had been compromised in the three to six months prior, after a device is compromised, there's a certain amount of time where that data gets collected over time. And then eventually somebody gets to the gem that was your bank account login or was your, you know, whatever indicator that they were able to leverage to exploit. But they saw like, you know, hey, this device was infected with pony loader six months ago and we saw it participating in this botnet. And then six months later, the person whose device that was at that time, and they were correlating, by the way, 
uh, botnet data that we were providing to them. They were correlating it with PII that they had that was unique, you know, account access. So we weren't able to help them with that piece, but we were able to show them what bots we knew of in the world over that time period. And sure enough, those guys, and now, I mean, imagine reducing your fraud by 40%. That's, I mean, they're going to put a statue of you in front of the data center. You know, I mean, that would be, that would be a winner for on the nerd front. But anyway, so Brian, thanks so much for joining us today. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. And I, I feel like I maybe ran you over a little bit. So sorry for all of that. If folks wanted to follow your research, see what your team is up to and so on, do you do social media? And if so, where do people find you? I do. So I am on LinkedIn and also Twitter. So Brian M. Stack at Twitter. And you can just Google Brian Stack and Dark Web and chances are some one or two of both of those will pop up. Okay, perfect. Well, thanks again for taking the time out to uh, chat with us today. And I hope the listeners enjoyed the talk. Thanks. It was a pleasure, Dave. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cymru.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.